Welcome, everyone, to Fink or Swim Live on The Stunt Show. This is Eliyahu Fink, and I'll be your host for this week's edition of The Stunt Show. I'm uh, one of the rotating hosts of The Stunt Show, and uh, we're coming to you live this morning in Los Angeles. And for you, if you're not in Los Angeles, maybe you're digging out from the blizzard that never was. And uh, for you, it's, it's the afternoon. So I'll say good morning to the, my, my fellow Los Angeles and California and West Coast brethren. And to all of the people out there on the East Coast, we say, enjoy the winter and good afternoon. You know, the last couple of weeks have been like, you know, the Yeshiva week, uh, vacation week for people. And it's great when people come to visit us from all over the world, want to get some sun, they want to get away from home for a little bit, and they come to Los Angeles, and some people come to our shul in Venice Beach. And it's a lot of fun to meet people from around the world and see their reaction when they see what kind of uh, shul we have, what kind of environment there is on Venice Beach for, um, for Orthodox Judaism and Judaism in general. It's, it's really cool to see it. And um, I, I especially felt that way over the last couple of weeks because of all the people that came from um, from all the various places around the world. And on any given week, we have people from pretty much, you know, at least three continents on a regular basis, uh, usually more than one person from those three continents and sometimes from more up to five continents. I think I counted six continents once at our shul, but... I'm not 100% certain. So if you're interested ever in joining us in Venice Beach, let, let us know. You know, just uh, reach out to me. It's easy to find me. Um, people used to have business cards. You know, people ask me, how, to, how could I reach you? I'm like, Google. Just Google me. You'll find me. So today's show is, um, you know, it's it's a topic that, that I've been working with and uh, discussing with people for quite a while now. Um, there is, you know, uh, there is an ebb and flow to the discussions that occur in the Orthodox Jewish community. And sometimes discussions are, um, are, are raised. They actually only begin because of incidents that happen in the community. So, you know, somebody gets, you know, in trouble for, uh, let's say a financial scandal or, um, an abuse scandal. Those issues will come up and people will talk about them because now it's in the public forum. Other issues are like constant issues and the ebb and flow of the, of the Orthodox community sometimes tells us which ones get the attention at which times. Um, and there's not necessarily a rhyme or reason to it, but sometimes when one article is written somewhere, a feature article somewhere, it can raise the discussion and it could become a part of the uh, fabric of the Orthodox Jewish community. And when it does, um, the discussions are fascinating. Some, sometimes the discussions happen at different times for different people. And for some people, it's a constant discussion. So that's going to be a little bit of the background on what we're going to talk about today. So Mishpacha Magazine, which is a very prominent Orthodox Jewish voice, um, it's considered, you know, a little bit of the, on the cutting edge of what is considered um, acceptable as far as open-mindedness in some parts of the Orthodox Jewish community. And in some places, it's, it's beyond the pale. It's too open-minded. But it does tread uh, very lightly, and it tries hard to breach and broach topics that are not normally discussed in typically uh, the Orthodox Jewish media. And one topic was uh, discussed this past week in the, ma- in the magazine, which um, was something that I don't, I don't really read Mishpacha on, on a regular basis. I, I usually get um, a lot of a lot of a lot of emails or messages from people when something interesting or that I would be interested in um, appears in the magazine, and so that was what happened this past week when they had an article about marriages and couples that have been, um, you know, trying to navigate the challenges of mixed levels of observance. In other words, you know, you have a couple gets married, you know, as typical as can be, where you have, you know, a guy goes to yeshiva, school a little bit, gets a job, or he's in cola. But it's a regular from um, family. And when I say regular, I mean it's the, it's the kind of thing that's been expected and is what is considered to be, by many people, the standard. And everything seems to be fine. And then at some point, one of the spouses um, deviates, and they've they've become much less religious, let's say, than their other, than their significant other. And the Mishpacha magazine was actually, article was actually very focused on one particular aspect of this issue. Um, they were actually, I think it was in the women's magazine, that would actually help explain this, but th- this article spoke directly to women whose husbands have lapsed in observance. And that is the focus of the article. But that also takes away from the fact that we also have the exact same thing happens in the opposite direction. So you have men who marry women and the women become lapsed in their observance. And that has the same challenges really are, is- are raised by the same issue 
uh, just in the opposite direction. Different different particulars come up. Um, what, what the article doesn't mention at all is you also have the same thing where you have a, a couple where they married and one is not observant. They're both not observant. And one becomes super observant through the marriage. And that also creates different levels of observance. Um, you also have within orthodoxy different flavors of orthodoxy. You have, let's say, you know, a couple that's, you know, they, they, they're a typical uh, yeshivish couple, which is, you know, to say that they're not Hasidish and they're not very modern. They go to yeshiva, they wear black hats, they're a regular yeshivish family. And one of them decides, you know, I like Hasidus and they become very Hasidish. And that's a very different social environment and also very different flavor to their Judaism. And when that occurs, uh, you also have varying levels of observance. It doesn't mean one's more observant than the other. It just means that one has a very different way of observing than the other one has. And that does create the same kinds of issues. Um, I've, I've talked to many couples, potential couples, but also married couples and also parents. Um, and they've, they've all experienced kind of the same thing, but in very, very different ways. And even, uh, you have a case where, um, it's not known really that one of the spouses is going to be so different in some things because it's not something that you think about necessarily. Um, as a single or as a, as, as a person who is just engaged in the dating process. But, you know, the differences, the social differences and some of the halakhic differences between Ashkenaz and Sephardic people, uh, creates, uh, sometimes a huge amount of tension as well. You know, some things that Ashkenazi people are used to doing and they get married into a Sephardic family, they, they can't do or other way around. Sometimes they, they are now able to do things that they don't want to do. Um, and then the other way around too, it just, it's so many times there are issues that are, that arise because of different levels of observance. And perhaps the most striking of these issues is what the Mishbacha magazine focused on, but it was not the exclusive, uh, it shouldn't be said that it's the exclusive domain of this issue with regard to men who lapsed in their observance married to Orthodox women. There's a lot of funny, interesting things about the article. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. If you haven't seen it, I, I suggest checking it out. If you need a link to the article, if you need to read it online, you can, uh, you can actually just go to my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash eliyahu.fink, I think, which is really not a very hard thing to do. Um, you can just click on it there. Even if you don't have a Facebook account, it's a public um, post, which means that anybody can see it. So if you want to read the, read the article uh, while we're talking here today, or if you're reading, if you're listening to this um, as, as a podcast, or if you want to just listen, if you want to read it afterwards, it's fine too. Uh, but you'll see there's a lot of quirks and interesting things about the article that we can quibble on. I, I don't need to disagree with or criticize the article. That's not that's not the discussion here because. For me, it's much more important that we're having the discussion than to discuss whether they had the right discussion or not. Well, there are a couple of things that do need to be addressed from the article, but we're not going to focus on the article in particular. We're going to talk about the issue in general. And one of the things the article begins with, this is something that is uh, is actually right on target, is that the shidduch system that we have in the Orthodox Jewish community, the prevalent shidduch system, which is to say not the one that engages people after they meet for an hour and not the one that people date socially for 10 to 12 years, the in-between version where parents do a lot of vetting and they decide whom their children should date and then the children date and then when they date, they, get, they date for a month, month and a half, maybe two months and then uh, there's a marriage. So because we've set up a system where there's a lot of vetting in advance, the vetting creates um, almost like a, a superficial, artificial, really contrived need to separate people based upon external things that you can see from the outside. So what happens is you have a list, let's say, of 12 to 15 people that you people think are 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 certainly compatible with the the perspective, you know, the guy, the girl, whatever it is, and either the parents or the prospective dating candidate will, you know, go through these names, and the only way to separate the people from the ones that you do want to date and the ones that you don't want to date are very superficial things on the outside, and because that becomes the thing that separates people, we now have a whole system by which there are resumes and there are details of very superficial facts that will connect people to, um, to, to, to the nuances that make them different from the others. And they'll use this as a basis for, you know, saying, yes, you should, or yes, you should not date, which means that what we're trying to do is we're really trying to match people up to be completely compatible. But that's the idea. When you find somebody that is so completely compatible, that's the one you date because all the ones that are not as compatible because of the external things that you see are the ones that get eliminated. And that has a, a lot of social ramifications. And one of them is that it creates the expectation of compatibility. And because of the expectation of compatibility, the dating process becomes a process by which we find out who is the person we are most compatible with. Which one of these people do I share the most with? Especially people who date for longer, they start realizing that they like this, they don't like that, this is a preference, this is a thing that they have to have. And when they compile this kind of list that they need to have match, then 
they inevitably are searching for somebody who is compatible. That's really what happens. And sometimes people, you know, evolve, they grow out of that, and they realize that compatibility is not the thing that matters as much as other things. What that thing is, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that, I, I promise. But in the meantime, we're going to try and start from the beginning and talk about how this all happens in the, in the dating process. And for that, I, I've, uh, I reached out to uh, somebody who has become known as an expert on this issue because of her vast writings on the subject and a personal experience, but also a great and deep insight because, you know, some people have more insight than others into these types of issues. Um, not everybody can be Dear Abby, but uh, some people have more of a, of a, of a propensity towards seeing whole situations and understanding them in a way that is helpful and useful to other people. So for that, um, I would like to first of all thank and also welcome um, Avital, who is known to many people as Avital Shizik, but has recently, and I don't remember the exact date, but if you want to read about it, you can find it in the New York Times, and I'm not even joking, uh, but recently Avital uh, married Rabbi Goldschmidt in Manhattan, and uh, she is now Avital Shizik Goldschmidt. So we welcome Avital to the show, and we would um, say hi, Avital, and uh, it's nice to hear your voice again. Nice to hear you as well. Thanks for joining us today. And Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I know this is now a topic from your past, but it's also a topic <laughs> from your present because it's true that it you've is. gone past this and now you're no longer uh, dating in the same sense that you were um, beforehand. But I think that besides for the fact that you have the anecdotes, we now call this anecdata. It's not just anecdotes, but it's anecdata. Anecdata like from that. hearing stories of others and observing people. Um, I'm sure you still have friends that are engaged in the process and because you have such extensive writings on the topic, I, I, I know there are people that have reached out to you to talk to you about this. So I wanted to get your sure. perspective a little bit on something that you wrote about, I think it was already two years ago, um, in the discussion of um, when, when people are dating, the narrowness with which we determine compatibility, and then also the, um, the, the, the converse of that, which is that when people find the person they, find, they feel to be compatible, that creates an expectation of staying within those lines. So you speak to that for a moment and tell us, you know, what your experience was, how you've how you've heard about this, how you experienced it, um, and then, you know, we'll talk a little bit about if this is a, if this is a good thing or a bad thing. But let's just first describe the issue. Sure. Um, I mean, you you summarized it quite well. We all know the drill in Orthodox dating. You ask for details about what you're looking for, TV, your internet, head covering is full or partial, Aliyah living in the states, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and it gets obsessive as a you know, someone who went through the process is not obsessive, and we get used to it, I guess, because in a way it's simpler. Um, it labels us each piece by piece. Um, but often what I found is it ended up creating uh, problems that may have not come up um, because of that kind of overemphasis on details. Um, so what's the problem? Like, so you're eliminating people that are candidates or that there are eight people that are getting married and then they find out they have problems later on? What's, which, which problem are you referring to? Usually I found the, the former, that you know, you're eliminating a candidate who, who actually could be perfect for that person. Um, because but, they're, but if they're not compatible, like, well, well, so how do, you, how do you explain that? How do you explain what? How do you explain well, the yeah, I mean, we, we, we think the compatibility means that people... Um, they share values. They share th- all those things we share. And because we are not as compatible on paper, how, how is it? How does that work? Like, explain explain it to us. Why well, compatibility on paper would not translate necessarily into incompatibility in real life? Sure. I mean, you can argue what is a value. What is you know is is a full you know. Let's take the simplest and most uh, most uh, really the easiest and most blunt detail is let's say head covering. Is partial versus full head covering an actual value? Maybe it's representative of a certain community that we affiliate with, and that by extent is a value. But is then that also an overriding value? Is that more important than, you know, belief in God, centralized, you know, Torah study, you know, belief that Israel is our homeland? These types of basic tenets um, that we hold dear. So those big picture questions are often put to the side. Um, really? You don't think that those are like baseline things that are also vetted first? Like, don't, don't they also look at the big picture things and then say, well, now that the big picture things all matched up, let's look at the compatibility? No, not necessarily. Usually people actually skip the first part, um, big ideas, and I find that, and I found that actually very frustrating because I was actually looking for someone, from personal experience, I was always looking for someone who really felt passionately about these things. And then I was constantly asked, um, you know, my dress or my 
you know, my tolerance for secular literature, something like that. And it was kind of irrelevant to me. Um, you know, I felt that those things I was much more flexible about. The details I was much more flexible about. It was really that I wanted to find someone who really believed in what I wanted to, you know, be a tenant for my family. Um, right. So you're, you're focusing so much on the way that people uh, feel, the way they experience, the way they um, the way they believe. It's very... Um, ephemeral. You can't really put a name on it. You can't put it. You can't put a description on it. It's very hard to explain. Sure, but, it's almost but like something are, that you have to kind of, of convey and build together. Um, okay, and we, so we tend to are, focus, it, as you're saying, on on the minutia, the things that can actually be described. And it, sometimes we just bias towards that because it's actually able to be described. Right. So I I find that to be the easy way out when we focus on the minutia, because you know, well, we can't we can't really quantify those other things. So let's talk about you know, um, something smaller. Is it a white tablecloth on Shabbat in her house or not? Um, Do people really ask that question? People have asked that question. <laughs> I mean, I've heard that. That's like one of those, uh, I thought that was one of those, you know, uh, urban myths. No, no, no. I've been asked that question. <laughs> okay, and then this is like, the, it's, uh, I, maybe I should I ask you. People also ask if the guy wears like lace-ups or, or, or slip-ons, and if he wears lace-ups, it's like, maybe it's because he's uh, lazy. He, he wears a lace-up, <laughs> it's like, you know, maybe he... He doesn't mind wasting time tying his shoes, and if he wears slip-ons, maybe it's because he doesn't want to waste time tying his shoes, or maybe because he's lazy, or maybe because he's not lazy. Like, do you, do you do you hear these things? Are they real? That I've never heard actually, but um, listen, blue shirt versus white shirt, I still don't understand that question. Um, these are there are many 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 um, permutations of these same ideas. So yeah, they do exist. They're actual questions. Okay, now what's bad about these questions? Why, why, like, let's say a person, let's say I do care. I'm, I'm crazy. I care that my, my kid's uh, spouse should, should have come from a family that has white tailcloths. My hang-up. How is that harmful? How is that damaging? It eliminates candidates. That's the problem. And I think uh, with the quote-unquote shidduch crisis that we're always talking about, um, that's one of the major problems is that we, you know, we have to get over these hang-ups. We have to understand to be adults, we have to be mature and understand that some things we can overcome. So you're saying that we're kind of teaching people, like we're infantilizing people. We're saying like, you won't have to worry about Absolutely. anything in your marriage because we're going to find the perfect person for you. Exactly. We can, we, people are people. You cannot cater, you know, you cannot custom design someone for yourself. Um, we're going to try that. And, and the inability <laughs> to realize that is, I think, a major hang-up for, for many singles, actually, for many, many singles. And I see this among many of my friends and many of the men that they date. Um, you know, they're still looking for someone who's going to fit every single check on that to-do list, and it's it's close to impossible. Right. Actually, it is it is impossible because uh, even people that have the same DNA and grew up in the same home, twins, they even mm-hmm. have different preferences, right? There's like they're twins. Right. They could be like, I'll they want one of them wants to date somebody, and the other person does not want to date that person because they have different preferences, even if they have the same DNA and almost the exact same life experience. Sure. It's impossible to find real compatibility. I, I believe so. I mean, listen, I believe that a mutual desire to grow spiritually is essential, uh, and I would not minimize that. Um, but cultural differences, the minutia, these things are actually much more permeable than we imagine. Right. Now, what do you think happens, though, um, you know, when when people date and they find out that people have, you know, differences, let's say they find out about them afterwards. Does it matter if they find out about them afterwards? Do people say like, oh, I'm not going to continue dating even though I like this person because I actually, you know, I cared about this when I was vetting and I didn't know it. So now now I'm, I'm going to let this person go. If it's that easy to let that person go for that reason, then I would say it's not worth pursuing. Um, but, if you know, if, if there's real substance in a relationship, I... I what I've seen from people, and I've seen in my own experiences, is that you, you, you choose the person over over those things. Right, but I'm afraid that some people, you know, we've in, we've we've in, we've integrated this um, this system like of the narcissism of small differences to such an extent that people actually believe they should stop dating people if they are, you know, having a great relationship. They're building something together, right. even if it's just after a few dates. But like they find out something that they were like supposedly caring about in advance, and now they'll say, you know, forget it. Yep. I've, I actually just a friend called me recently to tell me that it didn't work out. Perfect guy. They were really. It was really getting serious, but he he really wanted 
to to work, and she really wanted a learning boy. So it just it fell apart. Uh, and it was one of the, it was one of the first calls I got because right, because like she liked him, so maybe she actually wanted the guy that's him. going to work. Her. I mean, like she has to realize that it's, it's I think it's a, a little bit of a lack of self awareness. You know, funny thing, I was uh you know I was with my family uh, eating, I think it was a brunch maybe on a Sunday morning uh, in my most favorite recently mm-hmm. a couple of years ago maybe last year, and like sitting it's very close quarters every restaurant in Manhattan you can't help but over here right. people especially you know I'm from Los Angeles now so we we talk a little less aggressively than the people in New York, but like you can hear conversations like as if they're sitting at your table and there was a couple of kids, you know, I guess they're kids, but like, you know, they're not really kids, they're adults, I guess. But, uh, you know, they can't, they were debriefing their friend from her date and, you know, she's like, yeah, it's been going great. We went out like five or six times and he's a great guy. And she's like saying all these nice things. They're like, okay, great. So when's the next date? She's like, actually, we're not dating anymore. And the friends were like, well, I thought it was going so well. And she says it was going well, but on our last date, I was really, really hungry. It was like a long date, and he didn't even ask me if I wanted to get something to eat. So it, I can't continue dating this guy. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, like, you know, if she is hungry, you know, maybe she should say something. Like, it's almost right. like you're waiting for to find somebody that can read your mind. And since this guy couldn't read her mind, she's gonna say it's over, even though it was going really well. But I mean, it's I, right. It's, it's a total lack of preparation for marriage as well. If you don't know how to communicate, if you don't know how to, you know, how to forgive, maybe it's not time yet. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think that somebody that has that issue, you know, at 19, 20 years old, they may never change. I mean, obviously people can change later in life, but it's, a, it's something that you're supposed to develop as an adult into that level of maturity. And if you're not doing that, you know, at that age, I think that, it's you know it's time to do a little bit of reflection and figure out if you're able to do it at all, um, and and that's the kind of I think emblematic of it of the whole of the whole issue as well. It's like you're looking for somebody that can read your mind, that could figure out what you need, and everybody has the perfect match. And then uh, when you find out something, let's say during marriage, like uh, your parent your your partner changes, then um, it's it's all it's all it's all it's all, you're all doomed at that point because now you don't have the things that you expected as far as compatibility goes. Right. I mean, I think that's actually, um, you know, the question of maturity is something that comes up. Unfortunately, I find it to be a product of the system is that we've kind of infantilized singles um, in the community. You know, like there is, I don't know who or what was the real the real cause of it, but yeah, in a way, I, don't, I think many singles are not, um, myself included at some point. Um, you, you're not mature enough to understand that, that you have to kind of overlook those differences with minutia um, if you're looking for something much deeper. Um, and and um, my fear is that many people come to this realization too late. And I see this actually among a lot of friends of mine. They, it, it took them so long to realize this. And it, they, they lost, you know, real relationship is going to work out because of that. Right. And I think that it's it's going to have an, a long-term effect if people don't um, learn how to be accepting of those who are not exactly like them in their marriage, but then it, it translates into everything. So you have a family and you have kids and everybody's expected to be just like the other. And compatibility is the most important thing. The kids must be compatible with each other and they must be compatible with the parents and the friends must be compatible with the friends and the friends must be compatible with the next friends. And anybody who's not becomes, you know, ousted from the community and they have to leave. In fact, that's one of the things I noticed in the Mishpacha article. Some of the things that were like the things that were the hurtful lacks of observance were so not like lacks of observance. Um, I mean, they were obviously not perfectly performing their religious duties, but I almost found like it felt to me almost like the, that uh, I'm so from song, you know, where right. like the guy is like saying how how the things that he does that are from are and they're really not. And the guy that does the, the Averis song is like these are Averis, not really Averis. Like a lot of them sounded like, you know, one of them is like my son is embarrassed that my, my that her father wear jeans. And, right. you know, it's true that maybe some communities don't wear jeans, but it, it's so it's so indicative of how narrow we have the expectation um, to how we define halacha. Exactly. But, but yeah, it's not just halacha though. It becomes like, right. it's not just halacha. It's the way we look at what we are, our compatibility. That becomes halacha. Compatibility becomes halacha. Right. And to this, I think that the most, the most central, uh, ways of re, of, of re-examining the way to look at 
you know, compatibility with regard to marriage um, is that compatibility is actually not really the, the, the most important thing, nor is I don't think a, a very important thing at all, because compatibility is impossible, like we said. And when people try to find compatibility, uh, they won't. And so, first of all, you're creating disappointment. But then also, like, you're learning all those bad lessons about what compatibility should create and what kind of marriage you should have. But then beyond that, um, it's, it sets up a kind of marriage where you, you're every issue you're trying to navigate and, and become compatible and you're trying to become one and two people that are different becoming one. That's kind of a metaphor that people discuss when they talk about marriage. Yeah. And I actually think that it goes the other way around. I think that we have to look for the incompatibility and that's where we build something else. In other words, you have two people that are, um, very different and incompatible in many ways. And when you find incompatibility, your job is to create a third entity. So, you know, like there's three entities in a relationship. There's the two people and then there's, and they're very different. Um, and then there's the thing they create is the relationship. And that is what I think, um, and that is what I think creates a different kind of, um, marriage or a relationship in general. When people realize that their partners in building a relationship, they're not looking for compatibility. They're looking for the strength and the maturity to build a relationship. And incompatibility is only part of the process of building that relationship. And that changes everything. Now we're not looking for people that are compatible. Now we're looking for people with whom we can build something. You're looking for a partner to build. Sure. And a building partner doesn't have to be compatible with you. A building partner can be somebody that is completely incompatible with you. But because they are a good partner to build with, you choose them. So... To take this from what this, from this, you know, to the next thing is like, there are also, I think you believe that there are limitations to this, right? You wouldn't choose the most incompatible person in the world to marry. Absolutely so, not. <laughs> so how would you kind of, you know, draw this, this imaginary line? How would you define where compatibility, you know, uh, shifts from reasonableness to, to narcissism and incompatibility shifts from opportunity to asking for trouble? I think it demands of every person to do a sort of Casual and FS first uh, decide what are the red lines. Okay, well, here's, here's the ideal person I want to marry, but the ideal is not necessarily reality. I found a great person who I really connect with, I really enjoy spending time with. Um, you know, what, what, are the, what are the red lines? What are the things that I will simply not be able to abide by in my home? Um, you know, I, I found that I really find that to be the only solution to this. I don't think, and that's obviously different for every single person. Um, you know, as in an orthodox marriage, certainly, you know, basic tenets of belief and basic halacha observance um, would be expected to be one of those things, one of those red lines. Um, but people are very different. I know who are, you know, one person is observant and the other is, you know, increasingly less observant. Um, so it works differently for different people, but that's but that's really how I see it. What are those red lines for um, every person? And, you know, and, and again, and as you said, I think those differences are actually creative. I think they're, um, they're, they actually inspire growth for people more than anything else. You, as others can think, though, someone that's opposite you, something other than you can, can push you to grow in ways that someone more similar to you might not. That's a great point, too, that if the purpose of relationships is to kind of become a better version of yourself, then if you're not challenged at all, then it's not going to do that. But then we have to talk about where we're going to shift this conversation now, you know, um, from, from just talking about, you know, the theory, especially about dating and sometimes the, the, the narcissistic of, of emphasis on small differences. But then, you know, there are actual issues that do arise when people marry with certain expectations. Um, and besides the expectations, they have, you know, different ways of approaching problems in life. So... When, when a couple, uh, starts out in a certain way, even if it's superficially the same thing, um, but one of the, one of, the, one of the members of that couple starts to drift. And I mentioned earlier that it can be in any direction, right? You can have a secular couple, one becomes super orthodox. Uh, you can have an orthodox couple that one becomes super secular. But then also within the, all the, uh, small differences and the nuances, you can also have people, like you can go from being somebody who would never have a white tablecloth on Shabbos to somebody who would only have a white tablecloth on Shabbos. Um, or any other silly narcissistic difference. But when you talk about that, you're not talking about, you know, you're in a marriage. You're talking about you have family, you have children. And, um, 
now you have not just the, the question of whether the relationship should be successful. It doesn't, it doesn't just talk, you're not just talking about the theory whether you're going to build a relationship. Now you're talking about, you know, we have a relationship. Should we break it and suffer all the consequences of breaking that relationship for the sake of compatibility? Now it's the reverse. And to, to, to carry that conversation forward, um, we're going to bring in, um, somebody that I've, you know, talked about with, with this issue extensively. And, um, it was, you know, one of my opportunities to you know, provide a little bit of my personal insight into this issue with this person. Um, and, you know, before we, we move on, we, we, we want to set this up. We want to talk about what kind of, uh, relationships we're talking about. So the Mishpacha magazine article focused almost, almost specific, specifically on women who are married to men who were not orthodox or not as orthodox anymore. And, um, we, we've, we've acknowledged that it can be really any kind of relationship. It can be on either side, but, um, we're going to, fo- we're going to focus today also a little bit on that kind of, on that, on that case, because, um, our next guest is, is a person that has a, that exact situation. So we want to say hello to Ellie Mandel. Um, hi Ellie. Hi. Hello. Thank you for saying hi and thank you for joining us. Um, this is, um, you know, you're joining in the middle of a conversation. I, I'm sure you've been uh, listening to what, what's been happening here, but we're not going to try, try and transition. You know, Avital has a lot of expertise and she's talked a lot about the kinds of, um, silly things that people are concerned about in, in dating and, and how that has consequences to, in marriage. Uh, but a lot of that's all theory, especially for, uh, for us, because for really for us, the two of us have not had this experience, you know, in an extreme sense. Of course, every couple realizes that they're not 100% compatible, at least if they're uh, self-aware enough to be to be aware of that. Um, but in some cases, the the differences become pr- pretty extreme. You know, you have a, a couple that gets married in an yeshivish uh, kind of environment, and uh, somewhere down the line, one of the people in the relationship says, "You know, yeshivishness is not for me." And then there are a lot of things that can happen. So one of the things that we noticed in the Mishpacha article that was a uh, very positive development was that now you have rabbis. There are two rabbis in particular that were mentioned in the article that were suggesting that the couple try work it out. So how does that um, reflect your experience? Did you find that rabbis were willing to work it out with you? Do they, would, do they, did they help support you in this process of trying to, um, of trying to keep the relationship um, alive and, and, and keep your family intact while you navigated the challenges of becoming uh, a couple with different levels of observance? Yeah, well, so there were two kinds of rabbis and a number of rabbis in both camps. Um, the first rabbis we encountered were immediately um, suggesting divorce. Uh, one rabbi said it right to me. He said, well, if you don't find the answers, you know, talking about believing in Hashem, God, he said, well, if you don't find the answers, you're going to have to get divorced. That was just his first reaction after five minutes of talking. So, Did he give you the answers? Oh, no. There are people out there with the answers, is what he said. He said, I'm not saying I have the answers, but there are people out there, and you have to go find them. So if his wife would ask him if he has the answers, and he said no, he would have to get divorced, too? Well, <laughs> he knows that there are people out there with the answers, and so I guess he'd paskin for himself that no, he doesn't have to. But of course, you know, I said to him, well, where's this thief in Shulchanar? Where did this come from? But that's neither here nor there. It's just interesting that that's the knee-jerk reaction. And then there were a few more rabbis who piled on. So why didn't you Which, just say, okay, uh, rabbi said to get divorced, let's get divorced? <laughs> uh, we were married at that point for seven and a half years. We had a very good marriage. Um, we had three kids. And, I mean, there was no reason in the world, if we should have gotten divorced over this, then... I guess anyone anyone should get divorced over anything. There was no because, reason for us to get because divorced. Because you're saying whatsoever. that the relationship was so strong and your family was so important to you and all that was yeah. much more valuable. I mean, I, if I was worried about getting divorced, if I, if I thought that that was uh, what was going to come up, I could have simply lied to my wife the way most people, uh, many people do, sorry. <laughs> um, and, and this is a big conversation in this little community of people who are in uh, quote-unquote mixed marriages. Uh, many people don't tell their spouses at all about how they feel or how their beliefs have changed. We had good communication. We talked all the time. And at one point, my wife said to me, just point blank, do you believe in Hashem? And 
this was after she had seen how I wasn't happy for a while with our yeshivish community and whatever. And I, we had theological discussions every so often anyways, and at one point she just says this, point blank. And for a split second, I have this question. Should I start lying right now? Should I go down that path? I've never lied to her. Never had any reason to either. Um, and, of course, I decided not to lie, and I said no. Wow, and she must have <laughs> kind of freaked out. Yeah, yeah. Um, Even so if you I'm have great communication and somebody that's very important to them, it's, it's like scary. it freaks them out. Like if I would say, do you believe the earth is flat? You know, and be like, yeah, actually, I do believe yeah. the earth is flat. That, that would freak me out. <laughs> i say, well, that's, that's different. <laughs> I mean, to the person who's the believer, it's not. That's my point. No, I understand. I understand. But like I said, we had open communication. There was a reason she asked me. She knew how I felt. So all I'm saying is I could have lied. I could have started down this path of lying. But I'm being honest. I have nothing to hide. Right. So we're being honest. I let me let's let's now let's, let's reverse it a little bit now. You know, imagine uh, yourself as as this you know as who you are now, and you were dating and you had met your wife. Right. Would would you do you think or let's say you're imagine there was a you know a dating profile shidduch system? Would you have put in you know non-believer as something that is important to you in in your in your in your resume or in your relationship uh, profile? No, no, it's not it, my non-belief in in. God and, and in the Torah and the, and the Orthodox tradition isn't that important to me. I mean, I've struggled with it since I, I know, uh, definitely since I'm 12. I remember my mother getting the Akiva Tatsis book. <laughs> among At others. 12? Wow, you were advanced. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember talking. I mean, this one uh, local rabbi in Muncie um, suggested that I learn Derech Hashem. I did that. Uh, At 12? You know, wow. Listen to, Ramchal to, didn't even write it Miller. at 12. <laughs> huh? I'm sorry? I said that Ramchal didn't even write it at 12. Oh. Um, right. <laughs> well, I mean, it started that. My, anyways, um, it, that isn't so important to me. What really changed for me was really at that point, it was just a, a shift. It was just a paradigm shift. I said, I'm not starting out the conversation anymore saying, I'm struggling with believing in Hashem. And now I'm trying to. I'm just turning it around. I'm saying, I don't. Now I'm still open to being convinced. Nothing had changed. I hadn't stopped keeping Shabbos at that point. We went to this rabbi together. No one dragged me there in chains. And we had an open conversation. But his first reaction was, you're going to have to get divorced if you don't comply. And this is a young Israel rabbi. Right. Now, and, let me just turn back to Avital for a second, because I, want, I, I, mean, I know you're listening intently to this, Avital. So I wonder, like, how, how you feel about the opposite direction. Because, you know, it's, it's easier for the, uh, for the person to say, it, it's easier for the person to say that once you're married, you would stay married. And I think you would probably agree that that's at least a good sentiment. But when you're talking about dating, going back in time a little bit, so would you say that a person has to vet this stuff in advance as well? Or is this part of the stuff that's a red line before, but not a red line after? You're talking about belief in God? Uh, right, observance, belief in God. In other words, we're seeing that? now that it can work even without that belief in God and all that. Um, we, we're, we're able to make it work. So the question is now, like, should that be a red line if it can work for those people? Like maybe maybe it shouldn't be or should it be? I don't know. But that's that's the question I'm asking, you know, putting back at, in your expertise as far as the dating goes. How would you how would you kind of uh, integrate this information into the way you look at that? You know, I, I don't I don't know more than you um, and you're more of a marriage veteran than I. Um, I. I think I mean, I would find that a red line personally. I, I wouldn't be able to. Um, I think I wouldn't be able to marry someone who had, you know, drastically different set of ideals. Um, you know, and it's like, you know, in a secular world, you will see some couples who, you know, you have a flaming liberal and a, and a red hot conservative, and if you cannot, well, at least they're both flaming. If the cannot meet, yes, they're both flaming. They can connect <laughs> on that. Um, you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, or even two different religions, people who who have two very strong. Uh, different sets of beliefs or disbelief. Um, you know, initially from and during a dating process, uh, I would see that as a red line. Right. So it's really, then the question it's not, is, I don't no. think it's so much about who you are. It's more about who you want to become. Okay. Uh, so I the question then is, so if it's a red line before marriage, does it also become a red line after marriage? Right. So, like, 
I don't want to make this personal, but like, what would you advise somebody in that kind of case? If like they said, this was my red line before marriage, would that also be a red line after marriage? I'm sorry, what kind of a case? Like, let's say somebody, this is the exact kind of thing. You're saying it's a red line for you personally, but there's a lot of people out there. A red line, I would imagine most Orthodox Jews would say it's a red line for me. I don't want to marry somebody who's not a believer or doesn't practice Orthodox Judaism. Sure. Fine. That's fine. So then does that translate into, well, if you're already married, then that should still be a red line and it should be something that is, is grounds for divorce? I don't see it as such. No, I think, I think a couple So can you, like, maybe just explain a little bit how you yep. see the difference? Yeah. Sure. I mean, you know, mutual love and respect has grown. You built a family together. You obviously have, you know, invested everything in one another. Um, that's already another story. I think, you know, I don't think I would even compare the two. I think when in dating, you're, you're looking at prospective candidates. So you have that liberty to, um, to vet, for lack of a better word, um, but I mean, later on, years later, or even even not so much later on, so people are truly, you know, married and love, and things are working out. Except for this, I don't, I don't think I'd be able to advise someone to to look for divorce, unless it was causing a problem in in the relationship itself, unless it was causing you know disrespect. Right. So I think what you're saying here is that you know um, compatibility is is important you know initially at least more important initially but you know afterwards once you have built something then you're actually breaking something you're dismantling something and that requires it's much more to to, to dismantle something than it takes to prevent you from building it in the first place but what, what that gets to though and that's the interesting thing is that people have the tendency to say whatever was a red line for me before becomes a red line for me after and that is i think where the root of the problem is so ellie in your experience did it did it sound like that ever to you either from your from your wife or from your friends or from her friends or from the rabbis that whatever was a red line for you before is a red line for you after oh yeah it seems like it's it's taken for granted and um yeah i'd say that as much as the from world talks about um respecting and highly valuing marriages it's it's only true in a limited sense. It's only true when they agree with it. So I found it interesting that the author of this Mishpacha magazine article um, mentioned the idea that the Mizbeach cries or sheds a tear when when a Jewish family is broken up. Um, because I mentioned that I, I brought that up with some rabbis. I said, which where in the Rishonim does it say is there this clause that that's only true? as long as they're both from, <laughs> right? Because, you know, all this goes out the window. And I would differentiate between believing in God and practicing, because I stopped believing in God, and I know so many, um, uh, for all intents and purposes, from people uh, who don't believe in God, but they practice for various different reasons. And... I do right, that. but you know what? Let's, let's just slow down for a second because I, I I understand the distinction, but let's you know let's not get let's not get stuck on that issue. I, I do understand though that um, there are people who say belief is an important part of practice, and for those people, we'll say that that's all part of practice. Other people say belief's not part of practice, and as long as you're practicing, it's okay. That's going to be like the I think the uh, touchstone to the, the dispute about whether belief matters. But let's just assume that we're at the point that whatever the person thinks is considered observance is the thing that's being broken. Okay, sure. So, so in this sense, right. you're saying that you know there's an unwritten rule that if somebody is not observant, then all the all the uh, all, all the all the beautiful midrashim that talk about how marriage is, uh, is sacred and we should keep it under at all costs, and the divorce is it's it's like the last resort. That's all you know if both people are observant. Yeah, I mean, did you see how quickly it went out the window? We're sitting in front of a, a rub who we really don't know very well. In fact, it was my wife's idea to go to uh, the rabbi of young Israel in our town. Uh, because she figured, oh, he's like more modern, you know, to her, coming from a very yeshivish background. He's more a modern, heathen. so we'll go to him. <laughs> um, and really, that was her idea. That's why she chose this rabbi. She calls him up, explains the dilemma, says, my husband doesn't believe in Hashem anymore. Um, and, and he says, why don't you guys come over and talk? And we sit down and talk. We're speaking for a few minutes, and he just says, well, you're going to have to get divorced. And how quickly? Who says that? That's right. like very... Right. It's so interesting. And there's a lot of things, there's a lot of unpacking take, uh, because also I think a lot of yeshivish people are under the assumption that a rabbi of a modern orthodox school is modern also, and that's completely not true. Right? Like a lot of modern orthodox schools have very from very yeshivish, very or, even Hasidic style rabbis, uh, but the congregants are, are more modern. So that's one aspect of it. The other thing is that modern orthodoxy, you know, one of the 
highlights of modern orthodoxy is that it, they, they, they pride themselves on, on, on subjectivity. In other words, it depends on the person kind of thing for different answers. So they may be seeing this yeshivish couple and they're saying, well, if you're that, then you must do X. But if it was somebody from my community that's more modern, that's more available for subjectivity, then they would uh, perhaps have a different answer. So I think that there's a lot of assumptions about, you know, different communities which are able to accomplish this, which are not. And it actually is, is, is interesting. This transcends all communities because I have people that I've talked to from modern Orthodox communities, from Baal Tshuva communities, from Yeshivish communities, from Hasidish communities, from Israeli communities, from uh, even non-Orthodox communities where one is much more observant than the other, that you, you have the same issues in all the cases. It's not something that's unique to us. Right. So I can, I can tell you uh, briefly how, how funny it was to me. I was taken off guard. I was like, we're not living in New York. We're, we're living in the Midwest in a small town. I'm like, this is not New York. This is not, we're not living in New Square. This is not going to happen. <laughs> um, but it did happen very quickly. So I said to the rabbi, in this conversation, in the same first conversation, my reaction was, well, half of your shul grew up with, with one parent from and the other one not from. They'd go out to work on Shabbos. And he says, well, that was different. Fifty years ago, it was different. <laughs> so I say, well, so if you're being the car of someone and, and the wife says she wants to become from, are you going to say, well, you're no, you're going to have to divorce your husband if he doesn't come along with you? And he says, no, that's different. We're allowed to do that, but now, it's, now, it's, now we have to get divorced. <laughs> right. No, that's different. Well, how is that different? It's probably, I think most of this is unconscious, and it's what you said. They make this assumption that whatever you would have considered a red line before marriage remains true forever. So no matter how many kids you have, doesn't matter how good of a marriage you have, doesn't matter how bad things are going to get, doesn't matter how disruptive divorce is to everyone involved, none of that matters. It's all out the door. And that was just the first reaction. That was the very first reaction. I don't think he thought about it very much in the five or ten minutes we were speaking. Right. He probably had never encountered it, too. And when you hear a question for the first time like that, it could be pretty disconcerting. So let's tie, let's try now to move uh, you know into the, in the more positive side. So you have this negative experience of, of like rabbis and, and even not rabbis from outside your community that you thought would be more open minded, giving you advice that was to, to to divorce and you didn't listen. So you know first of all for your wife that was probably one of the first rebellious things that she had done because you know as this uh, as this yeshivish person who had grown up in that community and had married a you know a good yeshiva bacher, I assume that uh, she had like you know pretty conforming pretty conforming kinds of um, of of a personality so what was it like for her to like now be this rebel not listen and how did that affect the relationship well um well to answer how it how it affected her and how it was how it felt for her to do it um that was definitely one of the things that changed um in fact i'd say that one of the very few um uh, recurring arguments we had in, in, in our seven years of marriage before all this was that I never believed in the whole idea of Das Tyre. I mean, uh, went of course, to of very course. You, of course, you didn't end up being from. I mean, uh, you were right. <laughs> slippery slope all the way. Right, right. For my listeners, uh, I'm just joking. And, and uh, I'm sure plenty of people blame it on that or similar, um, similar uh, un, un yeshivish views. So, and we would argue about this because she firmly believed in it, and this was the final. This was the final manifestation of it. She went straight to the rabbi. Um, and you see this, and she was the kind of person that's described in this Mishmach article, uh, where the therapist says in the article, the therapist who's interviewed says, um, these marriages could work out. So if they're advised by their rabbinical advisors to, re- to make the marriage work, then they basically, then they try to make it work. Then they go to therapy and try to make it work. But it has to come from the rabbis. It's all very circumscribed. Don't worry about the kids. Don't worry about yourself. Don't worry about him. Don't worry about anything. First, ask the rabbi. So that was her initial, and it was difficult for her. Yeah, and then she got the wrong answer from the rabbi, at least according to you guys. Well, you know, and she was torn. What do I do? And, in fact, part of what you said earlier, where they sort of compartmentalize, they'll say, um, well, for you, I think the answer should be this. That's very true. One or two of the rabbis that she spoke to said to her, what does your father think? Where does my father come into this? <laughs> I'm standing in front of you asking a question. But uh, yes, you should ask thinking. him, what does your father think? Huh? You should have asked him, what does your father think? <laughs> well, <laughs> she doesn't ask. But, but this was very interesting to her. She's finally started to see this. She 
hold herself above it a little and start to see what's really going on. There's no answer. It's just everyone's shooting from the hip. <laughs> so right. it was very difficult to her. And, and as you said in the beginning, in your introduction, um, uh, in your introduction of me, uh, that you spoke with us. You spoke with her, and you were one of the uh, few rabbis who told her, you don't have to get divorced of it, over this. And she had to pause. Wait, I don't? And then she'd go back to her yeshiva rabbi and say, maybe I don't. And say, don't speak to these rabbis. They said this. They said, don't speak to them. Uh, Ellie's just trying to, uh, Ellie, me, this Ellie, is just trying to uh, manipulate, manipulate you. He's trying to control you. He's taking you to modern rabbis. Don't listen to him. Don't speak to them. But um, this was a very big struggle for her. It took her a while to, um, to assert herself. And it was very scary. It was very, very difficult for her. But, of course, ultimately she did do it. She didn't so what was the thing that gave her that strength? Like, to, to, What was the thing that she was able to hold on to? How did, she, how did she pull through it? I mean, obviously you're not her, so you don't know exactly what it was. But right. as an outsider, what did you see? Well, first of all, she was very strong. Um, and I, you know, that, that comes up every so often. She, when she wants to do something, she'll do it. Ultimately, she may be pushed around, but ultimately she is strong. So that's for sure. I mean, that helps. <laughs> but um, in addition to that, it's just she, she realized that they're not going to be there help, to help her. We had a good marriage. I mean, they're not going to raise the kids. We're going to fight if we get divorced. Right. I think and a lot of people think said, divorce like, is a solution, but it actually just like concretizes and, and, and makes the problem last forever because now you're always going to be separated. But when you're married, right. you can be together on 90% of the things and disagree on 10 Right, and then, of course, everyone has uh, um, the motivation to make things work and to compromise. But uh, if you have to get divorced over this, then you're not going to compromise. You're just going to keep fighting. And right. you're still going to have want, If you problem. want it to work, the then kids, you have to work the, to make it work. Right. You so know, let's talk about it working now because have... it is working for you guys. I mean, obviously, every couple right. has stuff that they go through. Nobody's perfectly compatible, and they have things that they have to argue about, and they have to work through, and they have to become um, more more understanding and empathetic towards the other. That's all part of a good relationship and a marriage. But you guys are doing pretty well, it seems. And you know, there are issues that are asked by the people that say, "I can't do this." So how do, how do you handle those things? You know, like in the article, they're talking about, well, why doesn't Abba go to Minyan, or why doesn't Abba make Kiddush, or why does he wear jeans, or why doesn't he learn? And all the kinds of questions that uh, parents are seem like to be like super afraid of answering. I don't know what the hard part is answering these questions. Why don't you just answer honestly? But how do you guys handle it? Well, as far as the kids go, we do answer honestly. Um, not just answer, we've been proactive about it all the way from the beginning. Um, we just told them. Uh, if my wife was the one who told them. She said, Tati doesn't believe in Hashem. And we have some non-from relatives. She says, you know, like this uncle... He doesn't keep Shabbos, but he still loves us. We stayed at his house <laughs> once. Well, Tati also doesn't keep Shabbos. And then they're, they're, my kids are little, and now the oldest one is nine. And, and so they say, but he used to. <laughs> so, right, but he doesn't anymore. We had this conversation once, you know, and then since then a whole bunch of times, all the time. Um, so that's as far as the kids. But even between ourselves, um, similar to what Avital mentioned earlier about Politics, couples with different politics. Politics is uh, just as much a hot-button issue and just as big of a problem in relationships uh, for people who take politics seriously as religion is for people who take religion seriously. And how do they deal with it? Um, two years ago or so, uh, This American Life had, a, had, a, had an episode, or a, it was called Red State, Blue State. It was all about friends and family members who had very uh, strong, different, different opinions on, on right. politics and how much it got in the way and how they dealt with it. And right. essentially, it was probably similar kind of uh, issues and, um, and solutions as you guys have probably implemented in your lives. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, it, yeah, you know, like, it's really not that, that... very different. And honestly, I don't find it to be a big deal. We uh, reduced the importance of religion between us. And truthfully, I argue that our relationship has gotten a lot better. She's not, um, you know, yeshivish girls are taught that they're basically getting into Ganadin on their husband's back. So very often they're concerned about how much their husband is learning Tyra. Um, that, all that's gone away. She learned that she could daven if she believes in davening. 
She doesn't have to push me to go to shul. Um, I don't have to go to learn at night. If she wants to learn Gemara, she could do that too. Uh, so, so it's actually helped our relationship because now our relationship is, is centered on the things that matter to us. And, and, and she has like ownership over her own Jewish identity. Right. Amazing. So I think actually it's, it's improved her Jewish relationship with her, with herself and with her children and all that. So that's better. And the last thing I wanted to get to, because we're, we're really out of time here, which is, you know, one of the articles, one of the, one of the people in the article, you know, mentioned like, you know, how the, the person who is, um, who's, whose kid is like not, not, not into their Orthodox Judaism as much. And they're like, well, it's because of my husband who's not, you know, so from anymore. And he's learning from their father. And I think that's a very typical kind of reaction because people think that that only happens to people that are, you know, they have these types of situations with the father or whatever. And that, um, uh, that is, that's a mistake, obviously, because first of all, your father was from, so obviously that's not the reason that you are not from. But second of all, um, to, to, to place blame and all these things on those, on those, on those, on those specific things, it, it creates, um, a resentment and, 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 a, and a false sense of responsibility and agency and blaming somebody else for another person's choices, which I think is a really big problem. And that also becomes part of the issue. I don't want my kids to be not from, therefore I have to be in a husband with a husband who is from, but really they have nothing to do with each other, which leads me to the final point, which is that people are very nervous about the kids. And you talked about how the honesty with the kids is important. And I want to share just one interesting anecdote that I heard, um, you know, on this exact issue, which is, you know, a son, you know, he's uh, going into getting older. Um, and he's, um, He's 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 writing a, a exam. He's writing a, a essays to get into school, and you know he wrote about how he was raised by um, two parents. One was Orthodox, and one was not. And he always used to be upset about. It. He used to cry like, "Why can't they just be one? I want to either be like her. I want to be like him. I like both." And he wrote in an essay that you know he used to be upset about, it, but he finally realized that he could appreciate having both because now he has both, and he didn't have to be one or the other in every moment of his life. He could be the way that his father is without compromising his observance, be like the way his mother is without compromising his observance. It had a way of affecting him in a positive way. And that was, I think, the best possible attitude. We teach people that you can learn from people um, and no matter their level of observance and you could become um, you could become a student of theirs. They could be a role model of yours, even if they're not the same level of observance that you have. I think we're doing better than we would be doing now. So I want to thank our, our guests, Avital. You're great. Thank you so much. Ellie, it's great talking to you again. It's uh, always a pleasure with both of you. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time and your expertise and all of your wisdom. So um, I want to thank you. And um, I guess if anybody wants to reach you guys, uh, there's uh, Google. Google them. They're on the internet. It's the best way to reach them. And if you want to reach me, you can do the same. I'm very open to anybody's uh, suggestions and ideas uh, for future shows and also discussions about pre the present show we did today. So thank you thank all you. Uh, for listening. Thank you. Nice talking to you again. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you all for joining us uh, live and in person. And we're wishing you all have a wonderful day. And we'll end off, as usual, by uh, with my favorite, one of my favorite songs from Ellie Schwebel, Don't Stop Giving Love. Lost in the dark, a lone so appealing. Walk in the shadows, hide from who you really are. Take for yourself or give of your soul.